0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, let me uh, just get a bit organised here so I don't go tripping over everything. Great to be back after... Uh, Best part of two weeks away over in South Australia. Um, it was a good time over there, a good time to catch up on a few bits and pieces of uh, admin, church admin things, some time of prayer and uh, reading some books that uh, I'm struggling to keep up with. Um, and I nearly, I nearly bailed out of coming to church and preaching today because I've uh, come down with a dreaded skin condition that uh, in Bible times I would have had to ring a bell and say, unclean, unclean, to keep everyone away from me. But uh, just in the last few days. But should I little a little discomfort stop me coming to church? You know, Peter and John were arrested and whipped and told not to preach Christ again. And what was the first thing they did? They went out and they preached Christ. Apostle Paul was beaten and left for dead for preaching Christ, but he climbed out of his coffin and went straight back in public and preached Christ. That's how important this message is. I'll see if I can get away from that uh, speaker a little bit. Thank you. <clears throat> That's how important the message of Jesus Christ is. And I have the privilege of preaching to you that message today. And... Uh, It's a message that was so important they had to execute Paul to stop him preaching it. But even that didn't help because we've got the Bible, of course, that uh, Paul continues to speak to us through. You have the privilege of hearing the message that Paul laid his life down for and that uh, millions of others have willingly died for over the centuries. So should a little discomfort stop us? I hope not. God's word will never be silenced. No matter what they throw at it, no matter what sort of persecution, no matter imprisonment, execution, you name it, God's word will not be silenced. Today we get to Ephesians chapter 4. If you uh, would open your Bibles up to that. We don't have uh, overhead as you can see, so you'll need to follow along in your Bibles with me. We've been hearing so far in the first three chapters How in the church, God intends to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And he intends to show that to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Every time the members of a local church gather together to worship God, to care for one another, to love each other, to welcome others in also, we send a message to the heavenly powers. Because the local church is an outcrop of eternity. It's a picture of what God will one day do in fullness when the times have reached their fulfilment. So let's get into Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Paul's typical fashion, he's laid out in the first three chapters of Ephesians what God has done for us, and then he suggests how we should be responding to that. Our response to God is always built on the foundation of what God has done first for us. And knowledge of God shapes the way we live, Our status in Christ is, or at least it should be, a life-changing reality for us. Given the incredible grace shown towards us, it's appropriate that we should strive to reflect him as best we can. So Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Why does it matter how we walk? On a basic level, it matters because God has told us to obey him. Therefore, every act of disobedience as by a Christian reflects something of God's on God's character, as it is written in Romans two twenty four. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a serious charge. I doubt any of us could count the number of times we've heard friends and family criticise Christians as hypocrites, and maybe even criticised us as hypocrites. And sadly, they're often justified in their criticism. We frequently do a poor job of representing a holy God and a gracious Saviour. The other reason it matters how we walk though is it affects the unity of the church. For three chapters Paul has been building his case that our salvation is in the context of a gathered group of people, the church, and the church is also Christ's body. So we've been called to relate to each other with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The church should be a place of safety. The church should be a place of security, of love, of welcome. It should be a place of hope and encouragement. We get attacked enough in the world. We don't need it when we come to church and gather together. Let me tell you in no certain terms. Every time someone in the church gossips about another church member or another Christian or stabs them in the back, every time they point the finger accusingly at someone, every time they abuse another person, every time that happens, happens the devil laughs with glee and he says, "See the hypocrites." In contrast, <clears throat> every time we treat one another with dignity, with respect, with love, with patience, we rub it in the devil's nose. We declare to him that we know the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You'll notice a little phrase there in verse 3, <clears throat> that we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Remember I said that Paul has been telling us, can you hear up the back okay? Yeah, good. Remember I've been uh, telling you that Paul has, has been saying for three chapters what God has done for us and this builds on that. Notice we're not commanded to create unity. What's it say? We're to maintain unity. There's a difference. God has already brought us together as believers, as one body. That's a work of God. That's not something we do. He brings us together as one body. We just have to live out what God has already done. And we do that by making sure we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ the right way. With respect, with dignity, with honour, with love. Remember, we're walking in works that God has already prepared for us to do. We're not having to think up ways to walk and things to do. God has prepared things, and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is one of those things. As we're about to see those, we go on to, to verse 4. Maintaining unity doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to differences or disputes or heresy or disruption in the church. There are some things we can agree to disagree on and there are some things we cannot compromise on. For there is one body and one spirit, Paul says in verse 4, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Does it matter what religion you follow? Don't all roads lead to God? That's what most of the world would tell us. All roads lead to God. Not according to Paul and not according to the Bible. There is one body, the Christian church. There is one spirit, the Holy Spirit. There is one hope, a hope of salvation in and through Jesus Christ. There is one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ alone. There is one faith, a faith that's founded on the grace of God. There is one baptism, a baptism that identifies us with Jesus Christ and says we belong to him. And there is one God and Father of all. If you learn nothing else from this passage in Ephesians, you should learn that there is no other way of salvation. It matters what you believe and it matters who you believe in. If we water down the truth of the word of God to accommodate other beliefs and religions and if we agree that there are many ways to God, then we're not maintaining unity. We're capitulating to the enemy. There have always been things that we Christians argue about and disagree about and there's a lot of things we can argue about in good conscience and come to differing conclusions on. But genuine Christian faith, the faith that must be guarded at all costs and the unity that we must work to maintain has some basic ground rules, if you like. There are some things that must be believed to be a Christian and I won't spend any time we don't have time to spend any time on that but I think if you want to know what I reckon is a pretty good outline of the basics of what you must believe go to the Nicene Creed the Nicene Creed tells you about the Trinity, the Incarnation the Crucifixion, the Ascension of Christ coming judgment when he returns the Nicene Creed will tell you about being born again and it talks about the Church forgiveness of sins, reconciliation there are fundamental things that the Nicene Creed covers that we must fight to maintain unity. And if you reject any of what I believe are those core beliefs, if you reject any of those, there's no no unity to maintain. We are not brother and sister in Christ. I think that's the Nicene Creed is a pretty good summary of the actual core beliefs to have, have unity. Pushing on verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Two weeks ago I talked to you about the grace that was given to Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. The grace he received resulted in beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, imprisonment and eventually execution. It's a strange grace, but it's a grace that Paul rejoiced in. And grace has been given to us also given to each one of us might not mean prison or death for us but we've been all been given grace not only grace for salvation but grace to live the Christian life grace to be witnesses to Christ grace to be faithful to him until the last day therefore it says verse 8 when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men It's a quote from Psalm 68 that Paul just uh, quotes here in verse 8. Psalm 68 is a psalm of jubilation. It's a celebration of a great victory that God has won. Psalm 68 starts off and says, Let God arise, his enemies be scattered. Then in verse 18 it says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men. It's a picture of a victorious king that's been off to war and conquered his enemies and he returns home after winning this great victory with uh, all the plunder of the enemy's cities and lands and all the gifts that the defeated foe, the tribute the defeated foe would pay to him. And when he arrives home, he rides into the city on his great white stallion leading a train of captives behind him, his captive enemies in chains behind him. The people line the streets, cheering and celebrating the victory and mocking the the captives, crying out, Our King reigns. Our God reigns. He has won a victory. That's the picture Paul has in mind when he writes this particular verse. Christ has been victorious over his enemies. You notice that Paul changes the psalm a little bit. It said in the psalm, you led a host of captives in your train and received gifts among men. Instead, Paul says, he gave gifts to men. Interesting interpretation of it. But let's face it, what could we possibly give to God? The God who created the universe with a word the God who has no needs, what could we give to him? It's out of the immeasurable riches of his grace, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the riches of his glory. They're all phrases from out of Ephesians that he lavishes gifts upon us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Ephesians is full of superlatives about Christ and about the work of God and the abundant grace of God. Moving on in verse nine, in saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who has descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. These are the gifts that he gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. They're not gifts that we would have been able to give to him. They're gifts that he gave to us. And the gifts are people. You might think these gifts sound a bit ordinary compared to the gift of salvation and Adoption and redemption and everything else that we've been reading in the first few chapters of Ephesians. Or you might think they don't really measure up to the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, those ones of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, tongues and things like that. You might imagine that they're superior gifts, they're more spectacular gifts. Maybe they're superior. But the Ephesians 4.11 gifts are not inferior in any way. They're very special gifts with a very special and a very important purpose. I'll very quickly run over uh, what these gifts are. Apostles were those who were chosen, sent by Christ, and the word apostle means sent one. They were sent by Christ to take the gospel to nations. They pushed into new areas and they pushed across cultures with the gospel. Apostolic ministry was marked by great boldness, by humble servanthood, marked by signs and wonders, great suffering, lots of salvations, was marked by new church plants. Apostles were known for their simple lifestyles. They were known for not chasing fame or fortune. They had a conviction to preach Christ crucified regardless of the personal cost. And they had an influence that was far beyond the local church. Their ministry was recognised throughout regions. could be argued that there are some today that have an apostolic type of ministry, great boldness, planting churches, pushing into new regions. But it's a ministry that doesn't have that face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ that was a requirement of the original apostles. And it's also a ministry that doesn't have new revelation. They are not apostles in the original sense of the word, but they may have, in a lot of senses, a similar sort of ministry. The prophets were mouthpieces for God. They spoke God's word fearlessly and without favour. Thus saith the Lord, repent and be saved and things like that. Sometimes that was a message given to them directly from God. Other times it was a message that was based on God's already revealed word. So there were both, the classic way of describing as there were foretellers and foretellers. Foretellers are those who predict things about the future. Such as Agabus in the book of Acts who told took Paul's belt and bound Paul's wrist with them and said, when you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. They're going to arrest you and chain you up and take you away. There are tellers. Who speak for God about current situations and call people to return to the Lord. I find it interesting that when Agabus warned Paul about his pending arrest, Paul took it not as a reason to back off, as we might. We might think, well that's a warning, I better not do this. Paul actually took it as an encouragement that God's in control, He knows what He's doing, and I'm gonna stay the course. The prophecy made Paul all the more determined to go to Jerusalem knowing that it's going to be chained up and bound and taken away. I reckon there's a message in that for people today who receive a word from a so-called prophet and follow it blindly. We're told to discern what the prophets say. Weigh it up and throw out the rubbish. Is it a warning to back off or is it a warning that this is going to happen to you? You need to push on. I love the fact that Paul said, I know what's going to happen to me and I'm more than ever determined to do it. Plenty of people argue that the ongoing ministry of the prophet uh, exists today. Plenty more argue that it ceased along with the apostle at, uh, uh, in um, Bible days. And uh, that the modern day would argue that the modern day manifestation of the prophet is a preacher. Now evangelists share the good news of the gospel effectively with non-Christians. The word evangelist comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. So evangelists have the gift of proclaiming the word of God and the need for salvation with clarity and boldness. But the word they proclaim is the foundational message of the apostles and the prophets, the words of the Bible. It's not their own interesting stories, at least a true evangelist is proclaiming this, the Bible, not his own experiences and stories. Now no one seriously doubts the existence of evangelists in the modern church. When we, when people hear and respond to the message of the evangelist though, they need to be knitted in to a local church. Shepherds then, which is pastors, pastors, are the ones called to care for God's people, new ones and old ones. And they care especially, but not exclusively, for their spiritual condition. The spiritual condition of the flock is the primary concern of the shepherds that have been given. They're given by God to lead, to feed, to protect and to comfort the flock of God, using the word of God as their primary tool. A good shepherd not only leads his flock to safe and fertile pastures to be fed, but he teaches them how to feed themselves. The goal is that the flock should be healthy, mature and Christ-like. In the New Testament, the term shepherd or pastor is synonymous with elder and overseer. They're not three different people or three different officers. It's three functions in the one person or, ideally, group of people. Teachers have the ability to open up and explain God's word, showing how it applies to life. Shepherds and teachers are frequently viewed as a combined gift in this list here. Teachers are called and gifted in opening up the scriptures to show how it all points to Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, there's some controversy about the ongoing nature of these gifts today, at least the first two, the apostle and the prophet, and I don't intend to spend any time on that. But what I will say as emphatically as I can that there is no new revelation coming from God. This is it. The Bible is it. We don't need anything else. Anyone claiming new revelation like Joseph Smith did when he founded the Mormon faith, anyone claiming new revelation is lying to you. They might be absolutely convinced in themselves that it's true. They might be even convincing in their presentation of it. But they're deceived. Don't be sucked in. So we get to verse 12. These gifts have been given by the Lord for a very important purpose. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you notice a recurring theme in those verses? There's a theme that runs through them of building up and maturing. Christ gave these gifts to the church to build up the body of Christ, to build it up to mature manhood, to build it up to the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer children, and so that we grow up in every way into Christ, and so that the whole body grows. None of us like to be called immature. That's an insult. There's a certain pride and satisfaction that comes from being a mature adult who others look up to and trust. Strangely, many Christians are happy to remain spiritual infants. Christ gave these gifts, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd and teacher to the church to bring about maturity. So how do they bring about maturity? Firstly, they equip the saints. That's you, that's me, that's every believer. They equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now you may have noticed that I rarely invite people forward for prayer at the end of a meeting. Usually I'll suggest that you turn to the person next to you if you want prayer. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why I don't expect you to come to me every time you have prayer because each and every one of you that's put their trust in Christ has the Father's ear, no less than I do. And that's part of the work of the ministry, praying for one another, caring for one another, speaking the Word of God to one another. I'm convinced that every time that I as pastor of this church do something that you're capable of doing, I'm slowing down the maturity of this body. If you don't know how to do something, I'd love to work with you to teach you how. Or, if I don't know how to, we can work together and learn how to do it. A ministry doesn't mean you have to be up the front preaching every week, so don't be frightened off by that. In my experience, the most powerful ministry that any one of us has is the ministry of prayer. Prayer. For someone. And the ministry of bringing the word of God to someone. The two most powerful tools we have and available to each and every one of you. You don't need me to pray for you. And in fact some of you have more faith for things when you're praying for someone than I probably do. And they do it by building up the body of Christ. Unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God are key components of maturity. There's nothing the modern church needs more than to know the Bible. There's a sad lack of knowledge of the Word of God in our churches, I think. And even more tragically, there's many churches that ignore the Bible entirely or only use it to make a point. They'll pluck a scripture out because they have a point they want to make. We all need to know what the Bible says about Christ and our salvation. What it says about sin and righteousness. What it says about the wrath of God and the abundant grace of God. Our maturity depends on it. The health of the church depends on it. And the result of this knowledge of the Son of God is that we become discerning. We begin to see through lies, deception, false doctrine, we don't get carried away into rabbit warrens of pointless speculations and mystical teachings. Those things only lead to destruction. If you want to read some of the warnings in the Bible about getting led astray by that sort of stuff, read second Peter chapter two and three. It's truly terrifying stuff. But yet so many Christians not only get led astray, they chase after it. A good friend of mine told me only just a few days ago about a, a church plant that he was a part of a couple of years ago. He was one of the early members of it, getting it started. The church was going on quite well until the pastor decided that a young woman in his congregation was more attractive than his own wife. Sadly, you know where this is going. My mate confronted him, told him that he needed to repent and return to his wife, but the pastor refused and chose the young woman over his wife. Now that story is sad, it's a great tragedy. What seems to me a greater tragedy maybe is that the church has continued on as if nothing has happened. The wounded wife has been discarded like a stale loaf of bread. And the congregation continues to sit happily under this man's ministry who misquotes scripture, makes things up and claims it to be scripture. And my mate has confronted him on all of these things. um, They see nothing wrong with it. Have their eyes been so blinded that they no longer discern truth from error? Maybe they never did discern truth from error. If not, because they didn't know this book. Are they so immature that they're carried along by human cunning and deceitful schemes? Tragically, it would seem so. He doesn't go there anymore, by the way. He couldn't sit under that minister anymore. There's only one way to stay safe. There's only one way, and that's to be anchored on the solid rock of the Word of God. When we speak truth in love, we all grow up into maturity. Every one of us. Sometimes, speaking that truth in love means confronting sin and error, like my mate did with that pastor. And when each part of the body does its part, when each part is working properly, the whole body grows and builds itself up. Remember, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What's the measure of Christ's gift? It's infinite. Grace, infinite grace, is given to each one of us. Now this portion of Scripture raises a few challenges for me and for you as well. Some of the questions I need to ask myself are, am I working to equip you all for the work of the ministry? And if not, what are some of the things I need to do differently? Am I not only equipping you, am I also releasing you for the work of the ministry? Many of us have probably been in churches where you spend a lot of time getting equipped but never ever get an opportunity to exercise that ministry that you've been equipped for. While I'm doing those things, am I directing your focus to Jesus Christ? Or am I looking for applause for myself? There's a built-in temptation for anyone in pastoral ministry, anyone that's up the front preaching, to seek their own glory instead of the glory of Christ. That's an area that you can speak truth and love to me. In. If you see that happening in me, I ask you, I command you, to speak the truth and love to me, because that's a danger. There's also questions for you. Are you looking to grow in maturity, to grow in Christ, or are you comfortable where you are? Are you reading the Bible for yourself so you won't get deceived and led astray by false teachers? Are you encouraging your brother or sister in Christ with words of truth spoken in love regularly? Are you a body part that is functioning properly, joined to the other body parts? Or have you become spiritually fat, lazy, complacent, bored maybe, even separated from the body? A separated body part doesn't survive long on its own. The ultimate purpose of these gifts is that the whole body, the whole church, Within these four walls here today and the whole church beyond, the church around the world, will be mature. That's the goal. Stable, strong, bold, Christ-like. Without this, the body of Christ can't grow properly. God forbid that any one of us should be responsible for a stunted and unhealthy church by refusing to do our part. Paul goes on and says in verse 17 Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I know many of you have been Christians for as long as you can remember, so it's difficult for you to look back at a time when you walked as the Gentiles do. You should thank God for that. But don't ever imagine it was because you didn't need the grace of God and his salvation. Some of us can remember when we did walk that way. I can remember. And there were a lot of things I hoped were true about God so that I could continue to walk that way. Things like, there is no God, so I don't have to worry. Or if there is a God, he doesn't really care what I do. Or even if there is a God who cares what I do, he's loving, so he won't punish me for it, surely. Futile thinking, Paul says. Things aren't true just because we want them to be true. Have you ever noticed that? doesn't matter how hard we wish it were true, it doesn't make it true just because we want it to be true. I echo Paul's words, I was alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in me. And the ignorance was there because of the hardness of my heart. I didn't want Christ. I turned my back on him. Let me tell you, that's all a downhill slide. The more we reject God, the harder our hearts become. Paul knows what he's talking about when he describes us that way before the grace of God takes hold of us. But I thank God that all that changed when God came knocking on my door. In fact, God didn't come knocking on my door. He came crashing it down. (laughs) I thank God that he crashed it down because I wasn't about to open it myself. Verse 20, Paul says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. Paul's just issued a serious, important challenge to us. It's a call to look at our own lives, to look at our own behaviour, to look at the way we we relate to other believers. I'll get into that a little bit more as we get to the end of the chapter. But then he concludes the chapter from verse 26 with a section that tells us how we should behave towards others especially towards others in the church remembers we're all remember we are all members of the one body called to maintain the unity of the church and this is how we do it verse 26 be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labour doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour And slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. The the first couple of verses of chapter 5. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Simple principles. Not always so simple to do. These things are not a list of things that we have to do to be a Christian. Rather, they're a list of evidence that you're already a Christian. These are the things that should characterise believers in Christ. Be angry, but don't sin. There's a difference between righteous anger and the sort of selfish anger that we usually feel. Righteous anger is not sinful. Righteous anger doesn't fester or hold a grudge. We often try to justify our anger as being righteous, but we know we're only kidding ourselves. How rarely it is our anger is righteous. That's why Paul tells us in verse 31, after saying be angry, he tells us in verse 31, put away all anger from you. Most of our anger is not godly. And never, ever let that anger simmer. The devil will exploit it to bring you harm. Stop sponging off other people, whether that's by outright theft or by not doing your fair share. Do honest work, Paul says, so that, there's a reason for this honest work, so that you can be generous towards others. Watch your tongue. Enough criticizing others and tearing them down. Instead, look for opportunities to build people up. When we behave in ungodly ways, we grieve the Holy Spirit. That's not the way you learn Christ, Paul said. Why then are you behaving in this way? Don't you realize you're grieving the Holy Spirit who has sealed you for the day of redemption? Do you carry around bitterness If you do, deal with it before it destroys you and others, because it will. What about rage? Are you a peaceful and peaceable person? Or are you always on the edge of snapping at someone? And no more clamour, no more quarrelling with people, no more bad-mouthing them. If you've got a disagreement with someone, go to them and speak to them in love. Get it resolved. For Paul tells us, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. Has God forgiven you for your sin and rebellion? Remember, your sin was serious enough to require the death of the only perfect man who ever lived, Jesus Christ. That's how serious sin is. But if He can forgive you, then you can and you must forgive others. It's not optional. When we live in this way, we show the reality of our salvation. We show it to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We show it to the world. We show it to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Let's face it, if we behave like this, we have something attractive to offer the world. But when we behave like the world, what do we have to offer? We will then be, if we behave like this, imitators of God, showing the world that we really are God's children. We must walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. When we get into chapter 5, we'll hear a little bit more about the sacrificial love of Christ. Authentic faith always results in an authentic lifestyle change. If you can't see change in your life, then that may be evidence of a serious problem. I can think of three possible reasons, each one more troubling than the last. Firstly, maybe your faith is genuine genuine, but you've neglected the means that God uses to grow you in Christ-likeness. It's fellowship, prayer, his word, worship. If that describes you, then set your heart now to do these things and you'll begin to grow. It won't happen overnight, as one of the old ads used to say on TV, but it will happen. Maybe your faith is genuine, but you've been hurt and turned your back on the church. And with each passing year, there is less and less evidence that you're a Christian. If that applies to you, then you need to repent and repent now. Turn back to Christ. Confess your sin to him. Ask him to take away your hardened, stony heart. And get back into a church where the word of God is faith, is preached consistently, faithfully and boldly. You need it. The most troubling, though, is it may be a sign that you're not a Christian at all. You've heard it said that sitting in a church every week doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a carport makes you a car. It's true. A lot of Christianity <coughs> is cultural Christianity. I've been brought up in the church or my parents were Christians, so I assume I'm a Christian. But if you don't see evidence of growth in your life, it's a serious concern. Because the Bible says that we are, when we are saved, that the Holy Spirit goes to work in us to make us more like Christ. If that describes you, then you need to cry out to God for forgiveness and salvation and faith before it's too late. Ask Him for a new heart. Ask Him for a new life. You'll never be able to live the life that Paul calls us all to work to live without that new birth. It just doesn't work. For those who have already put their trust in Christ, I hope and pray you'll see increasing evidence of your salvation in your life by your increasing Christ-likeness get in the word of God and stay in it it changes you from the inside out and don't neglect the, the church you're a vital part of this body here we need you to function properly but you need us to grow to maturity it's a two way street we need each other Ephesians 4 is a chapter I think that often gets neglected except for the fivefold ministry bit, the Apostle, Prophet, Evangelist, Shepherd and Teacher. You hear that preached on fairly frequently. I don't know that I've heard much of the rest of it ever preached on. It's a challenging chapter because it demands that we measure our Christian faith, our Christian maturity or our lack of it against a certain standard. It challenges us because it demands that church leaders put time into building up the saints rather than building up their own ministries. It's challenging because it insists we look at our willingness to be part of the body for the sake of the body, not just for our own benefit. It's challenging because it may expose the shallowness or lack of our faith. So finish this off. Close your eyes, there's some questions to ask yourself. Am I still walking as the Gentiles do? Or do I show evidence that I've come to know Christ? Is there evidence that my life is changing? Slowly maybe. But am I becoming more Christ-like with every passing week, every passing month, every passing year Is my thinking being changed so that righteousness and holiness become more and more desirable to me and sin becomes more and more repugnant? Have I put off my old self? Put on the new self? Have I put away falsehood? Or do I still get pleasure out of the old ways of gossip, criticism, Dirty talk, arrogance, judgmentalism. Am I truly a part of the body of Christ, a functioning part of the body of Christ? Or do I think that's only for other Christians, fanatical Christians? As you look at your own life against the plumb line of Ephesians chapter 4, how do you measure up? Is there something you need to get right with God? Are there areas of behaviour and attitude that you need to straighten out? Do you look at this list and realise you may not be a Christian at all? If that is you, turn to him now. Confess your sin to him. Put your trust in him for your salvation. He promises not to turn away any who will come to him in faith. And then we can all embark on this journey to maturity together, encouraging one another. Let's be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Let's build each other up in faith. Heavenly Father, we pray you will work these truths in us so thoroughly that we will walk every day in a manner worthy of the high calling to which you have called us. We will choose to function properly within your church in humility and in gentleness. We will bear with one another with patience and we will build one another up with truth spoken in love. Lord, if we've been neglectful of any of these things, I ask for your forgiveness and I seek the wisdom of your Holy Spirit to teach us how to be healthy mature and growing body parts. Lord, when you saved us, you taught us Christ in ways that we did not know or understand before. But now, Lord, by your grace, we will renew our minds with your word. We will walk in righteousness and holiness and we will be imitators of God. For you have saved us and forgiven us. You have given us a new purpose and a new hope and you have prepared good works for us to walk in. So Lord, we will do all this by your strength and to your glory and in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au